talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Just talking in Hamilton uh, just last week how building permits uh, over the $2 billion mark. We remember when it was one, and uh, it's just amazing how Hamilton has exploded, uh, not only before the pandemic, but uh, continuing the growth after the pandemic. And the city of Hamilton has been chosen for the Canadian home of Vera, uh, sorry, Verificient Technologies, a New York-based company specializing in verification and authentic, authentic, <laughs> On authenticating you through its AL, uh, uh, sorry, AI machine learning, computer visioning, and biometrics. Boy, I'm going to let the uh, pro uh, jump on this. Rahel Siddharth is with us, Chief Operating Officer, and with us now. Rahul, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Sorry about butchering that. Uh, Verificient Technologies, tell us what you do. Absolutely. Thank you uh, again to, to you and all your listeners. Uh, my name is Raul Siddhartha. I am the uh, CEO of Verificient. Uh, we specialize in identity verification uh, and providing secured sessions for uh, on the uh, for two different types of products. One for higher education, K through twelve, and uh, corporate e-learning programs. We ensure that when they're taking a certification exam, uh, we're ensuring that person is who they say they are, and that there's no deceit or misconduct during that examination. And then Boy, we also offer, go ahead. No, go ahead. So please go ahead. And the second uh, software that we offer is called Remote Desk. And we offer a way for remote workforce compliance and uh, management. So if you are planning to hire remote workers, uh, this is a software that can ensure that there's no data breaches that have, uh, has occurred and ensure that there's a high level of productivity. Just as if someone is working in the office, it's the same sort of level of productivity or even more uh, if they're working from home. Um, so those are the, the, the two softwares. We've, been, uh, we've delivered over 5 million identity verifications and test sessions in the last 10 years to over 130 countries, including Canada. Uh, we've been working in Canada for the last uh, three years, uh, but we're uh, very excited and proud to announce our uh, ver- official Verificient Technologies Canada office in Hamilton uh, that we're opening, uh, that we've opened up officially, I guess, today's our day. Um, And so uh, uh, happy to be part of Collision uh, 2022, where we're making the announcement actually just a few hours ago. So this is the first place that uh, we've made the announcement uh, on air. Why Hamilton? My goodness, Hamilton is just a wonderful city. It's, again, close to Toronto. Uh, It's easy to commute to, but it really comes back down to talent. Uh, There's been a a global competition for talent, and Canada needs to remain competitive. And what we saw about uh, Hamilton is that there's such a great pool of diverse people from all walks of life, different age groups, and we're looking to hire in account services, marketing, tech support, Uh, and accelerate research development and innovation while prioritizing data protection and privacy for the highest level for all Canadian citizens. And uh, just the um, also looking for the need for bilingual uh, uh, support. uh, And Hamilton uh, was uh, one of our top choices, and we are very excited to make it our our top choice um, in the upcoming weeks and months to come. How has your business changed, especially during a global pandemic? Yeah, great question. Absolutely. So uh, there's always been 
um, a slow, you know, actually a, a, a fast uh, adoption for uh, mm-hmm. colleges and universities. I'll speak. I'll, I'll speak specifically to higher education, uh, colleges and universities. Uh, we've been working with um, uh, Humber, Western, uh, Queens, uh, uh, providing. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, providing exam security for their online programs. When the pandemic hit, it was a natural fit for us because uh, in-person instruction was suspended and everything went online. Mm. And so we were there to help provide uh, bringing meaning to that online credential by providing identity verification and uh, as well as securing online examinations. And, uh, you know, if there's a will, there's there's a way. Uh, if students can f- try to find a way to cheat, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. they'll try to find it. And uh, we've been, uh, you know, lucky enough and also through uh, grit and through research and development, staying ahead of those that uh, uh, have, that commit testing malpractice. And so now that... I hope that the pandemic is finally behind us, but unfortunately, it just always seems to creep back a little bit here mm. and there. But the adoption now of seeing that uh, a person who comes into a classroom to learn instruction, that se- person that's taking that uh, same instruction from the comforts of their home anytime, anywhere, they can still have that same value by taking an online uh, examination using our software. We've only got about 30 seconds left here, Rahul, but how do you, where is this going? Because obviously we've now just started to feel comfortable with this. As you mentioned, we, you know, the pandemic has put us there. Where is this going? What's the future? What, what can we expect? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, uh, we are now offering a, a technology that students can bring their own laptops, uh, computers into the classroom, and we provide uh, proctored services within the classroom to ensure that they're not cheating using their laptop. And also there's going, still going to be an, uh, a hybrid model of students coming to the classroom and also uh, learning from uh, their home anytime, anywhere. Uh, the same thing with remote workforce management with remote desk. Uh, everybody likes to work from home, have that uh, hybrid model, that convenience, and our software allows for that. So we're looking to build relationships. Our, it's, we're new in the neighborhood. If people can Recommend recommend us some good restaurants and some good partners. Uh, please uh, come by to our booth E three three eighteen at uh, Collusion. Would love to chat. Oh, you're going to get a few people take you up on that, Rahul. Rahul Siddharth with us, Chief Operating Officer, co-founder of Verificient Technologies, just moved to Hamilton and uh, setting up shop here. Congratulations. Good luck moving forward. Thanks very much. All right, we've been talking at length, man, about two and a half years about uh, the Canadian healthcare system and how, um, you know, the system that we uh, much admire and, and boast about uh, actually ha- displayed quite a few thaw- uh, flaws during this global pandemic, uh, whether it's in long-term care uh, with uh, personal support workers, uh, hospitals, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, the burnout and fatigue that uh, they're all feeling uh, now, it is obvious that change have to be made and hopefully uh, we'll move towards that and uh, work towards improving uh, right the way across the country 
country, what Canadians can expect uh, when they end up in the hands of uh, health care. And, and one of the great solutions uh, that's happening is, is right here at Mohawk College in Hamilton. They're introducing an accelerated tuition-free program to train personal support workers to meet the growing demand for workers in the field. Uh, there's opportunity coming out of all of this, believe it or not. Let's bring in Karen Ball, Associate Dean, Nursing, School of Health and Community Services, Mohawk College Institute for Applied Health Sciences, and with us now. Karen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to talk about this great program that really supports those folks out there in the community who want to do something, who hear about the desperate need for personal support workers, but face a lot of barriers in order to get that education and be able to get out there and um, and take on that that role. So, so tell everybody what you're helps tell lot. everybody yeah tell everybody what you're offering and what has changed and mm-hmm. how it's easier now. So typically, uh, the the regular program for PSW is two terms. So sort of January to April, and then again May to, to August. And instead with the accelerated and plus they pay tuition, and when they're in clinical, they don't get any money for it. So through the whole. Um, program, it's they're paying money, but they don't make mm-hmm. any money until they're done. This program is different. It's funded from the government. So um, across Ontario, uh, there are there's a commitment to help increase the number of personal support workers by offering free tuition, and not just free tuition, but actually money for books, uniforms, whatever additional shoes, any additional costs that might be incurred. Um, and it's only 12 weeks of online courses. Um, all the theory, instead of being almost um, eight months, is actually 12 weeks, so half that time. Um, and it's all online, so it's it's nice and flexible because I know people are looking at a summer, they've got their kids home, back and forth to camp, so they need that flexibility. And then when they go out into the clinical setting, it's eight weeks of full-time clinical practice close to home we have lots of partners so they don't have to travel far to get to their clinical spots and it's actually paid so which is a huge difference from uh, the regular programs Mm. we have two intakes coming up uh, the first one in july 4th and then the second one july 25th and so these are provincially funded programs Uh, who qualifies for them how do you qualify for them so on the uh, personal support worker the psw Uh, accelerated link on the website it actually shows the admission criteria Um, as opposed to nursing it's not that sciences are required but uh, grade 10 math is required and then uh, uh, high school English uh, grade 11 or 12 English but if you don't have those um, criteria we have a lot of different options to support mature students so just because you maybe didn't finish your high school diploma doesn't mean that you can't be going to college where colleges are here to help support those folks that maybe didn't finish high school. This is a great idea, Karen. How did this come about? Uh, obviously funding uh, well, through a government program, but it's great to see the, the colleges jumping on board. Definitely, and it's nice. I mean, we've been working on a lot of different initiatives through Colleges Ontario with the provincial government. There's a number of different um, opportunities that are happening for the personal support workers and for nursing as well. Another one um, that Mohawk's going to be launching in January is uh, folks who are PSWs and want to become practical nurses. 
And we're going to be launching a bridging program to help support that transition as well. So um, they're really looking at trying to support all the different members of the healthcare team. There's lots of opportunity for people here, isn't there? There definitely is. I mean, the government has been uh, actually pretty open about working with Colleges Ontario to look at all the different opportunities that that could be there to support um, increasing the number of seats um, in the different programs. So along with all the additional seats for the personal support worker program, we've actually now we have three intakes of the practical nursing program a year. Every term, people can join us. So January, May or September instead of two. So that, again, is increasing the number of students um, and eventually then the number of practical nurses. The great thing about the Mohawk program, too, is that it's four terms in a row. So it means that after after 16 months, essentially, they can become practical nurses. So, again, there's lots of different opportunities that are are quite flexible to help folks who are interested in, in joining the healthcare team. And it sounds like this PSW program is a great entry-level program for people uh, looking to get in, but perhaps didn't plan for this maybe 10 years ago. Exactly. And that's a great thing about uh, mature learners. My background is in adult ed and mature learners. And, you know, just because you didn't think about wanting to do this when you graduated from high school or when you left high school for whatever reason, doesn't mean it's too late. We have folks of all different ages who join the personal support worker program. Yesterday I was at convocation and it's wonderful to see the wide range of ages walking across the stage um, with the the diploma of personal support worker completion. So it's never too late to start. And particularly with this program that makes it so easy to participate. And also, again, there's no financial barrier along the way. So it really is a super way to get involved. What is the biggest challenge as an institution um, getting more people um, out in one side and, and out the other? Uh, is it seats? You need more, you know, the demand's there now. There just isn't enough room in the classrooms. What's the biggest challenge now for institutions involved in these programs or even you know, nursing and doctor? For sure. Some of it is, is space, truly, because all of these programs take labs. It's, it's not that hard to fit in some extra theory courses, particularly since we do them online. But all of these courses involve a lot of lab time. And I know yeah. as, a, as somebody receiving healthcare, you'd want to know that they got to practice in the lab setting. So mm-hmm. definitely you want to have lots of lab, uh, lab time available for students. So that's one thing. But we're, going, we're looking at lots of different ways to create more, um, more spots, more opportunities in a variety of settings so that we don't have any restrictions on how many students we're able to, uh, to bring into the program. So if people are interested, how do they get involved, Karen? So if they go on the Mohawk website um, and look up Personal Support Worker Accelerated, then that will take them, they can see more about the program, and there's also a link to apply through um, what's called OCAS, the Ontario College's application system. And if they have any problems, though, please don't hesitate to contact admissions at Mohawk. There are a lot of super people that will basically take you by the hand and help you through the whole process. Mm -hmm. So don't worry if you aren't sure about where to go or what to do with it or the system doesn't work or a link doesn't work. We're here to help you. 
Good advice. Mohawk College in Hamilton introducing an accelerated tuition-free program to train personal support workers to meet the demand. This is a great opportunity. Karen Ball with his Associate Dean, Nursing, School of Health and Community Services, Mohawk College Institute for Applied Health Sciences. Karen, congratulations on this. Good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott, for having me and being able to let everybody know about this great program. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I was thinking of Bruce Winder just this morning. My son and I, uh, my son picks up the uh, loaf of bread. He's making toast. He goes, is it me or is this is this loaf of bread smaller, Dad? That's shrinkflation, son. That's what that is. And then, of course, went into the big spiel, which Bruce and I have talked about in the past, of, you know, the, where there was normally five rows of cookies, son. Now there's only four. Uh, but what about the company itself? Is it getting smaller or bigger? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author. Retail before, during, and after COVID-19 and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on, and thank you for including me in your day. That's my <laughs> That's it. There you go. I'm teaching your lessons right there at the uh, kitchen table. Uh, anyway, this is a, a weird story, and we've heard about this in other sectors, but Kellogg's, mm. of course, Frosted Flakes, Rice Krispies, we know how big this company is, is dividing itself into three separate categories, being cereals, snacks, and then plant-based foods. Is this about the food, or is this about big corporate America? It's about uh, big corporate America and financial engineering. Hmm. So what companies do sometimes is when they have a bunch of different businesses together and the businesses are growing at different rates and they're Hmm. seen differently by stock markets, then sometimes they chop them up. And this is sort of like a reverse synergy. So instead of saying, you know, the company's valued more together, the pieces are actually valued more than the individual company itself because um, shareholders will probably reward the snack business more than they will the cereal business, which is flat to down, and the plant-based business, which has an unknown future right now. So are the times changing here, Bruce? I guess that's an uh, an underestimated (laughs) question considering the pandemic, because at one time it was about, like you just said, it was about acquiring things in in economies of scale and such. Has it changing? Well, a lot of things have changed, particularly for Kellogg, because Kellogg actually had a pretty great time during the pandemic because people ate inside. They had cereal again at home. They had snacks at home, Pringles and things like that. And for a while there, everyone was on this, um, um, you know, um, fake meat bandwagon. Okay. And, um, And that's sort of, you know, Beyond Meat and some of those other players have sort of tanked recently. So, you know, the shining star that was the plant-based business probably is more of a question mark now. And they realize that cereal is kind of going to fall back to earth now that people are going back to, uh, to work in the office. So this is basically about taking a company that has all these different divisions and separating the divisions uh, by how profitable they are so uh, a weak one doesn't bring a strong one down. That's exactly what it is. And they're going to try to, you can sell them easier that way too, right? So, you know, who wants to buy Kellogg? It's massive, right? But if you chop it up into little bits, they can sell the plant-based division. You know, I think they did about two or 300 million in sales. They can sell the cereal division for a couple billion. And uh, you know what? They say too that the cereal division will have its own kick at 
capital expenditures and investment because the drag with the cereal it was sort of like you know the child that didn't get any any love here all mm. the capital went to the snack business because that was growing and there wasn't much capital allocated to the cereal business so now it'll kind of have its own little kingdom to uh, to do what it wants so uh snacks obviously the kingpin here cereal behind that does that change i mean because uh, cereal seems to be pretty consistent snacks change a lot they do. do they? Snacks change a lot. Snacks go up and down. I mean, some of the brands they've got, like Pringles, is pretty evergreen, right? And they've got some brands, too, with some of the those granola bars you, you use in the morning. But cereal is just, you know what? It, you, cereal, we are all from the 70s, and we all load mm. it up with sugar, <laughs> you know, every morning before school. Well, it's different now. Moms and dads don't want their kids eating sugar, right? They want to eat uh, healthy foods. And, uh, you know, and people are uh, more time starved now, so they're on the go and they just grab a bar, grab something, you know, on the way. So um, does, does this change how we will see business in the next five, ten years or will it go back around? You know, it reminds me of, you know, the old days with uh, Henry Ford. You know, he would build a tire plant so he didn't have to rely on the tire industry and then the, an engine exactly. plant and this, that and the other. So it was all a self-contained unit. But then the reverse happened and they started dismantling it and farming out stuff. Is this a cyclical thing or with the pandemic, is this a change uh, in the way we do business? I think it's more, it's probably just a company-specific thing. I mean, anything yeah. goes on Wall Street and Bay Street, but I think it's just company-specific. You know, if you look at what's happening or what happened with uh, Gap, Gap has, you know, Banana Republic, Gap, and then Old Navy. And for a while there, they were talking about spinning off Old Navy for the same reason. It was, you know, in really good shape, and the Gap was sort of dragging yeah. it down. But, you know, it comes and goes. I mean, back in the 1960s, the conglomerates were king and queen. You know, the whole General Electric, where you buy a whole yeah. bunch of companies and you run it. Those days are kind of gone now. There's no shareholder reward for being a conglomerate, and that's been like that for a while. So. You know, people will chop up things. It's whatever you can get in terms of highest shareholder value. All right. Bruce Winder has been with us, retail analyst and author. Oh, by the way, is there going to be any backlash against the shrinkage we've seen in packaging? Are people going to be, so is there going to be all of a sudden a pendulum come back and somebody go, we're going to give you more now? Like, Where's that going? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know what? I think that people are just too tired to really care too much there's a bit <laughs> of backlash Pe people are just trying to survive and then you know what when times get good again in a few years they're going to start to increase sizes and do bonus packs and try to get more money that way so it just ebbs and flows depending on where the economy is bruce winder retail analyst and author bruce always uh, thanks for the time be well yeah take care scott thanks a lot when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 CHML. today is national indigenous people's day and over recent years there's been a greater greater focus on these issues of course the very first uh, truth and uh, reconciliation day uh just celebrated last year what does this mean uh celebrating this day let's bring in liam midzane gobin settler scholar assistant professor political science brock university and with us now liam thank you for the time i hope you're well Hi, Scott. I am doing well, thanks, despite uh, some travel-related delays that have me uh, speaking to you from the Calgary airport right now. Oh, no. Well, I guess join the long line of, of travelers there, Liam. Our best, hoping you get through that quickly. Uh, thank you for taking the time when you're dealing with this. We really do appreciate it. Uh, obviously, National Indigenous Peoples Day, we celebrated the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. The difference of both, uh, the significance of both. So, I think... What's, it's really important to have both. Um, 
I think National Indigenous Peoples Day is really an opportunity to celebrate, uh, celebrate the strength of Indigenous peoples, celebrate all of the vitality that the, each of the three different peoples bring to Canada, and really celebrate kind of what continues to happen and all of the strength that these uh, communities are, are willing to show. National Truth and Reconciliation Day gives us an opportunity to remember, similar to Remembrance Day, uh, and really gives us an opportunity to kind of reflect on what the country's done in the past. And I think that this, this day today in June gives us the opportunity to really celebrate what's to come in the future. Is this National Indigenous Peoples Day uh, this year really about Indigenous people, or is it about what the rest of us have learned over the last year or so? Well, it's hard to say. Um, I think that what it will be is individual for each each person, really. Um, in some cases, it will be a chance for us to reflect and learn. In others, it's a chance to join in with the powwow or celebration. There are a lot of ways for anybody to really kind of connect with all of the, the peoples in their own community. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cop-out to say it's individual, but I think it, in this case, it, it really, really is. And it depends on kind of where you're at in your own journey of learning and journey of, of, of reconciling in some ways. Boy, that seems even more significant this year than in past. Uh, uh, do you notice that or is it just me? I mean, things are, it seems different. I'm not sure that there's, we're seeing the change that we'd like to as quickly as possible, but it is different now. Do you, Liam, do you, do you see that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember you and I have talked a, a few times over the last year about mm. these kinds of issues. And one of the things that we've kept bringing up and kept saying is there's so much more awareness. There's so many more people who, if they don't know the whole history, they're starting to learn the history. We're just talking about these things more. And I think that that does really change what these days mean and how people interact with them. Um, but like you said, like there's still a lot more work to go. And um, I think each of these days and in each of these days of recognition kind of show us and, and really give us the opportunity to, to see some of what, what is happening uh, and reflect on maybe what we can do more over the next year. I think, and I've said this to you before, Liam, uh, you know, Canada, and as a young guy growing up, I never thought we were really old. We really have never had much of a history, but obviously that was my ignorance in, in what we were taught or what we were not taught. I'm feeling that this is, you know, and I, and I don't mean this to sound as selfish as it's going to, but it explains Canadian history as much as it does, as we're learning of Indigenous history, it's explaining Canada's history. I think so. I think especially if we start thinking about it in terms of the relationships that have brought us to this point, right? Absolutely. Because when we start thinking about it, um, I think it's important for us to, to not only frame it in terms of Canadian history, but think about it as our collective history, right? Because hmm. even before Canada was a, a country, even before it was, you know, upper and lower Canada, even before um, there were Europeans on these shores, they were really vibrant, and vital connections, communities, nations, and political life across, you know, what we today call Canada. And so I think, you know, when we're learning about all that, and we have a day to, to celebrate that, what that means that we get to do today is uncover some of what makes this country so unique in the world, and what kind of a foundation we really have to build a future on. 
National Indigenous Peoples Day today. Leah Midzane Gobin with us, settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, talking of the significance of this day and what it means to all Canadians, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Uh, Liam, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. All right. Um, it, it seems post-pandemic or uh, whatever stage it is now where we're in uh, after two uh, and a half years of a global pandemic, it seems that the tide is turning for the prime minister. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, many of us were um, uh, very much supportive of all of our political leaders, depending on it didn't matter what the political stripe was. Everybody was working together. And now that we're coming out of a uh, pandemic and things are starting to get back to normal, uh, the criticism is starting to fly and uh i, I noticed uh chantelle hebert's column in the uh in the toronto star is justin trudeau heading for uh, defeat uh can he win another election susan delacourt also uh been pretty critical of uh how the the prime minister has managed things uh coming out of this pandemic let's bring in dr kathy brock professor school of Pub policy studies and uh, department of political studies queen's university and is with us now kathy thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i'm doing well thanks scott have you noticed a changing in the tide here for the prime minister are, are things different now we are where we are in this global pandemic absolutely they're quite different the prime minister's popularity started to drop before the last election but then it rebounded during the election but where he took the biggest hit was during the blockades and his popularity dropped at that point people didn't trust him and he has not recovered from that I remember this time very, very vividly, and I was—I remember being quite frustrated because it seemed that we were, uh, instead of praising the ninety percent of Canadians who had been vaccinated, we were uh, we were running down the ten percent, uh, you know, either which couldn't or didn't want to be vaccinated, and it really seemed to be a pivotal a pivotal point and and a really divisive point in uh, Canadians' history. Is that accurate? Uh, to me, it just at one time, at the beginning of this, we're all loving and banging pots and pans out on our front porch. And at the end of it, it was like everybody was ready to, to, to fight each other. I think you're right, Scott. And in particular with the prime minister, people were getting very frustrated. There were two things that happened with him. First of all, when he began to talk about the protesters, he dismissed them. And he used terms that yeah. were pretty... Um, unfavorable for the average person. They misogynistic and misogynistic yeah. and racist. Well, yeah, but also just he was treating people as if they were just not worthy of his consideration. It was mm. very similar to the Hillary Clinton deplorables moment. Mm. And so people rebounded and they did not like that. But then the other thing that he did was he let the blockade go on. People liked the fact that it was cleared up quickly when it was cleared up. But people said, why didn't he just talk to them? Why yeah. didn't he come out? Why didn't he do anything? Why did he let it get this far? That's not being a good leader. 
Yeah, I remember in the first few days uh, when when things were first starting to to get serious, uh, it, it appeared that nobody was interested in, in talking about them. And then we saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and boom, uh, the channel changed, and 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 off we were uh, going in that direction. It seems now that even the media is picking up on this that there just hasn't been a lot of managerial skills displayed coming out of this pandemic. I think that is something that people are seeing more and more. Now, before the last election, people started to question the ability of the government to govern. And the opposition parties just weren't able to mount a convincing alternative for this government. So when the Trudeau government came back in, the voters were primed to be fairly critical. And they started to look closely at what the government is doing. Now, there's another factor coming in here. When the economy starts to go bad, people hold the government accountable. And so we're seeing a lot of that rebound on the federal government right now. And also what we witnessed here with the Ontario provincial election, the top five issues, I mean, health care, it's always up there, but the top five issues were more economic than they were social. Whereas if you go to the last federal election and even pre-pandemic elections, a lot of the top five issues were social, whereas this time out, it's, it's affordability issues, uh, housing, uh, energy, uh, inflation, uh, that sort of thing. It seemed that uh, it's just a, it's a different world right now it really does and one thing we know over the years is that voters are very consistent if they feel like they can't put dinner on the table or it's too costly or they can't drive their vehicles because it's too costly then they're going to hold the governments to account if they feel financially secure if things look hopeful for the future they're going to give the government the benefit of the doubt so some of this is natural One other thing is that this government is reaching the eight-year point. Hmm. And at the eight-year point, Canadians tend to say, is this government delivering as it promised? We're pretty generous up to that point, and we'll we'll give them time. We'll say, well, they promised that, they didn't realize it. But by the eight-year mark, they're saying, why didn't they do that? And that is also what's coming to the fore now. Are you surprised that as everybody is talking about affordability issues and, and, and you know energy prices, which obviously are reflected in the, in the supply chain and, and everything, it's the one single thing you can do that will uh, give immediate relief to a lot of different people. Are you surprised the Prime Minister is not even talking about that? It's like he seems to be the only politician in the country that is not talking about some sort of, of gas tax relief or, or some sort of relief for, for people, and, and obviously those connected to the supply chain. Yes. If I were advising the Prime Minister, I would be saying, you've got to talk to people directly, and you've got to say to them, I understand what you're going through. Very often when you're going for lofty policies or policies that affect people generally but don't deal with their day-to-day conditions, people are going to say that you don't understand them. You don't get it. You're too distant. And that's when a government looks arrogant and tired and Canadians say, we need a change. Uh, you use the word arrogant. Um, I remember hearing one of the ministers saying when, when a, a, a reporter asked a question, I, I reject that question. Well, it's been asked. You can't reject it. You decide not to answer it. Talk about that arrogance. And it, it just appears that they're just not identifying with the middle class. They don't seem to be identifying. And 
they seem to be used sticking to their talking points too much. So they're going mm. with what they've been told to say instead of saying, even if you look at um, the hearings going on about the, um, calling the Emergency Act, mm-hmm. even if they said to Canadians, listen, we were worried, we might have overreacted, but it was for your benefit because we didn't want further harm to come. And we, needed, we believed we needed this to take the actions we wanted to. But as soon as the actions were taken, then we restored all your rights and we rescinded the Emergency Act. Canadians would get that. It would be straight talking and they would like it. But the government instead is sticking to its talking points and it's losing the trust of Canadians. Dr. Kathy Brock is with us, Professor, School of Policy Studies and Department of Political Studies, Queen's University, talking about the mood in Ottawa and Canadians' impression of that. Kathy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, Lots of chatter in the last couple of days about Canada strengthening its continental defense and specifically NORAD. Uh, This is the defense system that protects the Arctic and uh, enemies flying up over at the top of the globe and such. Uh, Something that was done years ago and has uh, been needing updating for a while. And now uh, this week, the announcement that uh, that work will be forthcoming. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Hope you're well, too. So far, so good, Jack. Uh, We've talked about NORAD for years now. Why is it all of a sudden, and I'm sure the Russian invasion of Ukraine has lots to do with this, but why is this a project we're looking at now? Well, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is almost entirely what it's about. Uh, for ever, ever since uh, 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea, we've had ample evidence that, uh, that Russia was prepared to be a bad actor internationally. And Canadians have not taken that terribly seriously until the invasion of Ukraine, despite the fact that our own military and our American allies have uh, pressed us on the need for NORAD modernization. What would Putin's reaction be to this announcement? Well, he probably won't be very happy, but uh, I'm not particularly concerned about his feelings. Uh, the important thing is that we are already vulnerable to uh, Russian uh, Russian attack under uh, under various uh, hypothetical scenarios, and it makes sense to uh, to upgrade uh, NORAD. The um, the Russians already have bombers that can launch cruise missiles beyond the range of the North Warning System. It's part of NORAD to detect them. They're they're uh, they're they're working on uh, hypersonic missiles whose uh, speed makes them very difficult indeed to track and target, and which are quite beyond the capabilities of of NORAD as it is, which are now on the verge of becoming obsolete. How long will this upgrade take, and do we have the capability of defending ourselves with this? Well, we do have the capability of defending ourselves with it if all goes according to all goes according to plan, but that's obviously a very big if. This is a substantial investment, uh, and it it will uh, tax the rather uh, dysfunctional Canadian military procurement system uh, to the max. It also raises important questions about Canada's defense posture. You may remember that back in 2000, uh, I think it was 2000, uh, 
2003 or 2004, the Martin government refused to take part in ballistic missile defense with the Bush administration. But now uh, part of the NORAD modernization is acquiring air-to-air missiles that only make sense for Canadian forces to have if we're going to take part in actually uh, in actual uh, ballistic missile defense, in not just detecting, but in actually shooting down uh, in uh, intruders. And uh, that raises the question of whether this debate is going to be reopened. You talked about attitude. We heard uh, Minister Jolie, Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie, talk about Canada's military and referring to them as conveners, uh, not necessarily a superpower. Are we seeing a change in attitude here, or is this just Band-Aids? Well, the proof is going to be uh, whether this modernization actually proceeds in a uh, in a timely manner. If it's uh, if it's only band aids or if it's only empty political rhetoric, we'll know soon enough. Now there is a NATO summit upcoming in the next uh, week or so. Uh, does this play into that at all? Well, it does because while NORAD is not uh, part of NATO. It is certainly part of Western defense, as broadly understood, and it's uh, it's certainly crucial to our uh, our American ally. Remember, NORAD is the only binational command in existence anywhere on the planet. Uh, Canadians have prided themselves on that. We've prided ourselves on the fact that the uh, that it has an American uh, commander and a Canadian deputy commander. That the Canadian was actually in command on on nine eleven, and uh, and so on. But uh, for years, uh, successive governments of both parties have neglected to make the necessary investments to make NATO, I'm sorry, NORAD, uh, technologically uh, uh, fit for purpose. Um, the uh, what? I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Jack. What sure. are we con- what are we concerned about if? Uh, Russia was supposed to take Ukraine in a couple of days. Here we are. It's like over 123 days. Uh, they're still hammering away, but many thought that this would be done by now. If they're having mm-hmm. such a hard time with Ukraine, why are we worried about them coming over the top of the Arctic? I think we're worried about the possibility that we and our allies could be vulnerable to political intimidation if the Russians had the uh, the capability to uh, to strike as effectively. Uh, it's uh, it's not so much the uh, the fear of direct attack as such that's uh, that's a concern, but the fear of nuclear blackmail and the uh, the free pass that would give Putin worry to actually have the uh, the capacity to uh, to implement such threats. Will we see Canada up its ante at this NATO summit and and promise more uh, more contribution? I hope so. It would be it would be quite an embarrassment if we didn't. After all of the uh, talk we've had recently about about how the, uh, the international situation has changed, we can't very well argue that we're now living in a less predictable, more dangerous world, and then refuse to uh, ante up when it comes to defending ourselves and our allies against the uh, the principal disturbers of the peace. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity uh, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care.
Todd Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, because there's a federal unit that tracks foreign interference and has identified what appeared to be a coordinated information campaign by Chinese state media outlets to control the domestic narrative around the tale and the return of the two Michaels to Canada. We talked about this uh, after their release. Let's bring in Gordon Holden now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So should we be surprised that this federal unit uh, has identified this? Is this any different than us saying, well, uh, the Huawei CFO pled uh, guilty uh, to a a, a deferred prosecution agreement? Is it the same sort of thing, just different versions of? I think we shouldn't be surprised. I think it is a uh, different version this is an evolving situation that the Chinese social media apps like WeChat, when they address users overseas, they are somewhat more subtle than in China in terms of article selection. But when you have a fast-moving story and when it's highly sensitive, and this was both among one Joe case, uh, you're going to get retractions, you're going to get second thoughts, uh, changes. So I wasn't surprised to read that story. I follow Chinese media fairly carefully, and I'm very familiar with WeChat, uh, but the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, will continuously attempt to control the narrative of stories with a slightly different version inside China and a different version outside, but not never completely different. Uh, you said this is an evolving. Is it still an evolving situation, or is this old news there? Are they still talking about this there? I think that is largely gone. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one reason is that um, uh, China would like to move on. They have Meng Wanzhou back. They don't want to hear much about the two Michaels, that's for sure. Uh, the Chinese version is, um, move along, folks. There's nothing to see here. I think that's their approach. Um, it doesn't mean the Chinese have forgotten about it necessarily, but I bet they're in the process of forgetting or partially forgetting. Uh, in Canada, not quite the same thing. Uh, we remember uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie saying that the two Michaels were on parole. What does this mean for them? Are they still considered criminals? Well, I suspect they are still considered criminals in the Chinese judicial system, and it would be very unwise of them to return. This was a long negotiation, in my opinion, and the Chinese were clearly not given, I take Madame Jolie at her word, uh, not willing to simply say, whoops, they were innocent, they were innocent after all. Uh, they wanted um, to be able to make that point, perhaps in the same way that the U.S. Justice Department wanted a deferred prosecution agreement with Meng Wanzhou, where, in effect, she admitted some wrongdoing. Now, I personally have a view that the two Michaels did absolutely nothing. They were simply mm-hmm. retaliatory. They happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and were grabbed. But I think that given Chinese-like symmetry, if Madame Meng Wanzhou uh, had to admit wrongdoing, although this wasn't announced in China, then we ought to make sure that the two Michaels are seen to have been um, done something wrong, and we will say that they confessed to it. 
So China got the Huawei CFO back, but uh, Huawei is still out uh, of all the Five Five Eyes allies and such, and now confirmed with Canada as well. So has this been a success for China? I think at the end of the day, it hasn't been success. I think it was damaging, very damaging in the West at least, not so much perhaps in the third world and in China itself. This whole hostage diplomacy exercise was a black eye for China. I don't. I think the Huawei decision would have gone that way eventually anyway. I can't see what success they got out of this other than they got Manamong back. I think they're going to be very cautious in the future about U.S. sanctions. Like this wasn't Canadian sanctions. These U.S. sanctions on Iran, uh, I think they're going to be super careful. And uh, I was in Vancouver just a couple of days ago. I don't think we're going to see a lot of senior Chinese or government or, or party or corporate officials transiting through uh, through Vancouver on their way somewhere else in Latin America. I think that, that I would not be surprised if they're going to try and prevent a similar um, situation reoccurring. Mm. So this federal unit uh, that, that tracks this interference has identified this. Um, I guess, as you said, we should, shouldn't be surprised here. But is there anything the Canadian government can learn from this, from this unit? There's always something to learn. And I do approve the fact there is this unit. Um, but how you exercise those powers of, of observation and what you do about it is a tricky question. You know, Canadians really value their freedoms. And if they want to read Sputnik or watch RT television, both of which are propaganda arms of Putin, um, they are free to do so. If they want to read Chinese media, Chinese propaganda, uh, they're allowed to do so. It's I get that there's a necessity of tracking what foreigners are saying about us, particularly if they're using outlets like WeChat that operate in Canada. It's not so simple, though, what we do about it. You know, I, I myself, to do my work, I have to follow Chinese media, and I do so. A lot of Canadians of Chinese origin follow events there because they have family there. It may be in their favorite soccer team. It may be in the weather. So it's very tricky how you police what foreigners say about us, even in this country. What about in regard to elections? Because there's been accusations of late that um, there was misinformation uh, from the Chinese Communist Party during the last election campaign. Uh, this is similar, but but not. Uh, are we paying attention to this? Well, we need to pay attention. I would put elections very much an electoral activity in a special category, um, attempting to skew the result uh, of an election in a democratic society is must be beyond the pale. And I think that's where Elections Canada, Rapid Response Mechanism, Government of Canada, CSIS, all those agencies need to be particularly alert around election time, but not just around election time, to where not just that they're saying things we don't like, attempting to change the narrative a bit. Believe me, what the Russian ambassador in Ottawa is saying about Ukraine doesn't fit with Canadian views, but where they try to affect events and shift opinions shift votes, um, denigrate uh, individuals who might be running for office. That's a whole other category. In that category, in my view, you have no choice but to respond and to act. It may mean expelling someone. It may mean cutting off some access. But the very the start is being aware of it, at least. If you're not aware of it, you can't do anything about it. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Thank you so much. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Yesterday, uh, uh, President uh, Joe Biden, Before I don't know, I'm not sure if this was before or after he had that spill on his bicycle. Did you see that? Oh, man. Uh, anyway, he was asked about gas prices in the United States. We all know what that's about. We're experiencing it here. And whether he would consider reducing taxation in the United States in order to give Americans some sort of relief, he said it was something that he was considering. However, this side of the border, it's not something we're even talking about. And you'd be hard find uh, hard pressed to find the Prime Minister even mentioning anything about lowering fuel prices uh, at this point. Uh, will we see something similar here? Will we see reignited talks in pipelines let's bring in michael veal so uh, michael veal is professor of economics mcmaster university academic uh, academic director stats canada research data center and with us now michael thank you for the time i hope you're well i am i hope you are too so we're hearing this starting uh this conversation starting in the u.s do you think it will start up here in canada no, I don't really think so. I think at the moment, the government has very serious fiscal problems. Uh, when you talk about the federal government, of course, could potentially lower gasoline taxes, but so could the provinces too. And you don't actually hear a lot of conversation about that, with the exception of Alberta. Alberta did lower its gasoline tax. Uh, that being said, uh, the uh, President of the United States is leaning in this direction. Why not up here? Uh, I know you were talking about the provinces. Um, I remember during the election campaign, uh, they were talking about lowering the provincial taxes, but then again, they're jumped up. Uh, they were jumped up again, just I believe it was recently in April, with other taxes. Uh, and then there's another one on the horizon. So is it really the feds that should be listening at this point? Can they make the biggest dent here? Oh, I think uh, both the provincial governments and the federal government could make a dent. It's a good word, dent, because I don't think it would be uh, as much relief as, as all that, but it would certainly make a difference. I noticed, for example, Japan has now actually lower gasoline prices unusually than Canada, essentially because they, they have lowered their taxes. Actually, they do it by means of a subsidy program. But the Japanese public finances are, are not really great. And Canada is also in a position now where governments at all levels are borrowing lots of money uh, and they have to be concerned about the loss of revenue. So does the U.S. government too. And I I don't know whether uh, Mr. Biden has really thought through the financial implications of that comment. Uh, Any chatter or any, uh, do you think, consideration for reopening any kind of pipeline discussion? Well, uh, yes, I think there, there is. I think that there is a reasonable chance that there will be a new administration in a couple of years. Uh, We have to remember that the pipeline won't be built instantly, uh, even if so. Uh, But I do think there is a prospect for, for example, Keystone XL to to go ahead. But unfortunately, it's not going to provide any current relief. And the relief that it provides will be to inflation in the United States. Uh, Remember, inflation in the United States is even higher than it is in Canada. Uh, people are talking about current relief. Um, uh, I know you can't build a pipeline in a month, a week, or a year, but uh, many are saying this Russian uh, conflict in Ukraine could go on for quite a while. So, you know, even if we get over this little bump, will this still not be needed uh, in the future? Uh, at the end of the day, too, I hear that Keystone is quite a is a good portion of it is already completed. Yeah, a good portion is. They still have a chunk to go. Um, uh, part of the oil that would be transported by Keystone is, in fact, American oil that would be transported. But, you know, the main reason that Canadians should be in favor of uh, Keystone XL is because it will allow more oil from Alberta to be sold at a better price. And so that improves uh, Canadian output and, and particularly in Alberta, but the benefits would spill over across the country. You I mean, I think about- your point. 
please. You talked about uh, how obviously governments are not in the position to be lowering taxes because uh, coming out of a global pandemic, the expenses have been quite high. That being said, what about the loss of revenue uh, we're experiencing, as you've just said, uh, with the Keystone Pipeline? At least then we can get uh, Alberta uh, product to, to, to customers or at least Tidewater in some way. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right that if we wanted to lower the rate of inflation, that was our target at any price. Uh, uh, probably the only way we could do that more or less instantly would be to cut gasoline taxes. And I think that's a trade-off that, that governments are going to face. It'd be interesting to see if some of the provinces besides Alberta go down that route. Uh, but in, in the longer term, um, it is in our national economic interest uh, to sell oil to people who will pay for it. And uh, we are hampering that by not having the pipeline capacity. And, and, you know, it's at some level silly because a lot of oil gets moved around in Canada in rail cars. Um, mm. Pipeline is much more efficient. How, did we shut the taps off too early here? In terms of our, our planning and, and, and I, I actually don't think and- we, really, we really shut down the t- the taps. What really happened was that oil got to be immediately after the pandemic. Oil got to be very cheap. You may even remember that point of time where the oil price actually went negative. Uh, and but that's, that's all very that's all very very temporary, Michael, because the world literally shut down. I mean, I remember talking to many environmentalists that thought it was never coming back. Which, in hindsight, is, is yeah, you know, my goodness, that's kind of silly. Absolutely, and I think. But the point is, is that at the moment. The reason we're not getting full-on production, particularly in the United States, but to some extent in Canada, is because people do not believe that they are going to continue to get this $120 a barrel price, uh, that they don't think the oil price is going to stay there. If they were confident of that, they'd bring more production on stream. Uh, where do you see us five years from now? Oh, probably lower oil prices. Um, I think that we will we will get in five years. We will have a, a pipeline uh, to the United States. I hope that we'll have a, a pipeline, at least in progress, to to Eastern Canada from Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think a lot depends on on the political winds. And at the moment, uh, the political winds don't seem to be favoring that sort of policy. But in the in the longer run, uh, for Canada to be prosperous, it needs to use all its resources. Michael Veal with us, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Statistics Canada Research Data Centre. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.